The ulama once raised a question, actually more than once, and it's a question that people today often have, and that is that how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give hidayah to that person who's never heard about Islam? Did that person ever get hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? Because outwardly apparently when you meet them or you look at them or you go back in history and you will find many human beings, you would have to think they never even knew about Deen of Islam. Interestingly, Imam al he took the very first instance of this and he writes about it in one of his works called Fasil al-Tafriqa. And what he writes about is those non-Muslims who were alive at the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah And if you look back and historically, in fact one would have to say it's a historical fact that the vast number of people who were alive at the time of Nabi Kareem never heard about him and never heard about the Quran Kareem and never heard about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the entire duration of his life. Now because we know this is history, we accept it. But if you pause for a moment, it shows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends hidayah in ways that are much different than me and you would imagine and think. If me and you were to think about it, we would have thought that okay, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to send the last and final prophet, then well, during the lifetime of that last and final prophet, his his teachings and guidance must reach all of humanity in his lifetime. Because he is the last and final Prophet, but no. In fact, if you look at it statistically, this very small minority of human beings alive on earth at that time actually even had a chance to accept or reject Islam. The vast majority of humans living on earth at that time never even knew about Islam during the entire lifetime of Nabi Akram. Now, this there are many lessons one can draw from this. I actually told you this for a particular lesson. But let me tell you another lesson first before I go to the particular lesson I wanted to draw from this. So one lesson is how important da'wah is on this ummah. What incredible burden Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed on the shoulders of this ummah. You see, if Nabi Akrim personally himself delivered the message to every race, culture, society... Still, there would be a burden on us to follow up on the message that he delivered. But given that Nabi Akrim did not personally deliver the message everywhere because it was not Allah Ta'ala's wish or will or instruction to him to do so. So wherever he himself did go, which is our own ummah, right? And obviously we have a big responsibility. But imagine all the places where he was not able to go and all the cultures and civilizations in which we are all living they never got a chance to meet him. Hmm? They were never graced with Sahaba. Many times people 
you know, when they travel to some Muslim country or even in some non-Muslim majority countries in Africa, and the Muslim minorities there mention which Sahaba Kram they, Allah but they feel that there are certain Sahaba Kram whose resting places in the Kubur are there. Fine, but then there are some places in the world where everybody unanimously agrees no Sahabi even went there. And mashallah, your blessed United Kingdom is one such place where there's unanimous agreement from every historian that no single Sahabi even came here. Allah Akbar Now I don't know, you would know that because I don't know so much about the history in this country, but whether somebody from Tabin came or from Tabai Tabin came, Allah Alam. Right? Certainly by Tabai Tabin, probably there was somebody who must have come. Alright? So, that's one lesson. Uh, the second lesson, however, which is what I wanted to talk to you about tonight, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends Hidayah in His own way, in His own unique way, according to His ilm, His hikmah, which is something that we will never be able to understand. Even when you see it, big mistake a lot of Muslims do is when they learn ilm of deen or they feel they're able to assess and analyze something, they think they now understand how Allah Taala gave hidayah in this particular matter. And only the things that they didn't, they're unaware of, they think that's in Allah Ta'ala's ghayb, that's ghayb, in our ghayb, nothing is ghayb to Allah Taala in the ghayb that is unseen. So they think that what is seen, they understand it. And they think what is unseen, they don't understand it. This is wrong. What is ghay, what is unseen, obviously we don't understand. But even what is seen, what you perceive, you also want to understand. Now let's take the number one thing that is most seen to us. And that's ourself. So what happens to other people? Yes, I can witness it. There might be people I know for 20 years. But there's no one I know better than my own self, right? So even there, no matter what you may think, you might understand why Allah subhanahu ta'ala has done something or is doing something, you do not understand. Everything is ghayb. Alladheena yu'minuna bil ghayb. Because that is all ghayb. might be seen, but it's beyond your complete understanding and comprehension. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hidayah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned in Quran al certain amount of information about how and when and to whom He sends hidayah. Right? So in that sense, yes, when we learn from Quran al from the Sunnah of Nabi Kareem sallallahu we can understand to a limited extent. And second, yes, you can understand from your own life and your own experiences or the experiences and lives of people around you. So now I will tell you something. That in the course of Allah Subhanahu Hidayah, we have seen many times with many people in history that Allah Subhanahu will pick a person up and put them, and you should not use my hand like that, Allah Subhanahu will pick a person up and He will place them in a situation in which if they want to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will have to come through some sacrifice or effort of their own. And many people make a mistake that they don't respond to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hidayah. 
And this is a big problem. So Santa Allah doesn't give Hidayah. And so for the answer, by the way, that Imam al-Ghazali gave for the non-Muslim, for the, who has never heard about Islam, is that even that person, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, gave Hidayah. How? Number one, by giving him a fitrah. And number two, at least once in that person's life, Allah subhanahu wa will send, you can say one blast or one nur of his hidayah into that person's heart, such that that person will ponder and wonder about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That inner fitrah, that ruh inside him or her, which knows for sure that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, that ruh will stir a little bit. And they will be brought right to the brink of Iman. Not complete Iman and all the tafsil, the details of Quran, but Iman in one Allah Subhanahu Iman in a supreme, the supreme being. And it will be up to them whether they give in to that hidayah or they resist that hidayah. Now obviously, if we accept this understanding of Imam Ghazali, that means that anyone who is a non-Muslim on earth has resisted hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then when we look at the Muslims, we also have this problem is that we resist the hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the ways we resist the hidayah is when things happen not according to our understanding. Instead of accepting that and submitting to that as a hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we resist it. So one perfect example of this how not to resist, yani how to accept Hidayah, is Imam Ghazali. Now this is a person who in his youth, and you would remember because we told that story in Bian, who was such a studious and pious student of Deen, then he became so accomplished at an early young age, then became a prolific writer and master of the Islamic disciplines of learning. So what did Allah do with him? Allah picked him up, out of all of that and put him in a place put him in a position on his journey now if you want to come closer to me it's not going to be your ilm it's not going to be your writing it's not going to be your teaching it's not going to be your preaching it's not going to be your fame now you're going to have to come to me without all of this now when it first happened to Imam Ghazali I imagine at that moment he would probably be stunned when he went through this quote unquote crisis of faith he wouldn't be able to understand like, why. How, what's happening to me? How is it possible? I am ustaz of tafsir and hadith, and I'm a faqih. People take understanding of sharia from me. <coughs> Judges ask me to guide them on fiqh. Ulama come to me to guide them on Quran and hadith. And me, I'm having doubts and questions. Hmm? There's no way he would have been able to understand that. He must have been shocked. But he had one thing that he understood. This is min janabillah. And if you understand that, that is sufficient, and that alone is what a person needs to do, to get hidayah. Now when he realized it was from Allah subhanahu wa and he writes this whole story himself, and in some city or the other, we even taught that text to you in England once. So then he resisted initially. Because he wanted that he should somehow come out of that in an easier way. He started understanding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me 
to walk on my own two feet, leave all of this name and fame and whatever I have. But he didn't want to do it initially. And he resisted. And then at some point he realized that he could not resist anymore. And he made a unique, I mean in terms of documented history, unique sacrifice that he walked away from all of that. Now, again you would think that okay, it was just the walking away I needed to do and I should find Allah Subhanahu the very next day. No, no, no. Two years. Two years he had to struggle and devote himself to come closer to Allah Subhanahu Two years. And then that journey was unfinished but he came back because of Hukuk al for the sake of his family and children and then he writes that I went back for the sake of family and children and then eight more years I had to struggle in the path of ibadah seeking Allah subhanahu wa And finally after ten years he felt that he had got yaqeen. Allahu Akbar kabira. I mean to make an effort like that for yaqeen that's called being talib of hidayah. Being searching for Allah subhanahu wa Accepting Allah subhanahu wa guidance. Ajeeb legacy. And in fact, although, you know, some academics will read Imam Ghazali of those earlier works, his real contribution to the Ummah is Ihyal al which he wrote after all of this. Parts of it during, but most of it after all of this. So when Allah subhanahu wa guides a person, let's put it another way. When Allah subhanahu wa does something to a person, you have to number one accept that it's bin Janabillah. And once you do that, it can be a source of hidayah for you. If we resist, it becomes a fitna. Just like once we gave you an example that when a person wants to sin, sometimes Allah subhanahu wa sends him or her hidayah at that moment and they feel hesitation. Maybe they feel fear. And this is a hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa now many times people, they resist. They step on their hesitation. They step on the fear so that they can do the sin anyway. Then if this continues with one act of sin, then they start wanting to do it for a lifestyle of sin. 99% of Muslims who left deen of Islam for agnosticism or atheism or non-practicing secularism, they only did so because of their nafs. They just made a larger decision. They made a smaller decision many times in their life to sin and they suppressed the remorse and hesitation Allah subhanahu wa put in them. Then they just decided to make a lifestyle decision. Because how long can we live with this guilt? So they stamped it away. So it's a fitna. It was a fitna when they refused to be guided by the guidance. Refused to be guided by the guidance. But if somebody accepts it, even at that one act, if they accept it, and they realize, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, min this fear is not my taqwa. This hesitation isn't my weakness. No, my nafs is bold, and my nafs is strong, and my nafs is fearless. If I feel any hesitation or any remorse, it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala putting this fear in me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala putting this shame in me. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala putting this regret in me. When they view it as minjana billah, it will become hidayah for them. And if they think it's their own fear, or their own hesitation, they say, okay, no problem. I'll do the sin, and I understand it's bad, and mashallah, it becomes a delusion even for them. That's why I'm calling it fitna, it becomes ghurur. They think, that, yes, I can leave at any time. They think like that. It's a, it's a, a jeep type of pride and arrogance. If I want to, I can leave it. It's not like I'm majboor, I'm doing it because I have to. Or I'm an addict. No, no, I could leave it if I want to. Why do they think that? Because Allah Ta'ala gave them that feeling of hesitation. They, mm, they tabled it. Neither did they give in to it. They didn't hesitate. They did the sin. But they kept it there that I'm a person who can hesitate from sin if I ever choose to do so. In fact, I remember once, all the way, the extreme case meaning an atheist, and that's what he said. Oh, I could pray like you if I want to. That's what he felt. He felt that I have the potential and capability to do all of that thing. That's literally, the, that, that was his attitude. I can do all of that. But I don't, I just chose not to. Hmm? If it starts small, it, it can spiral away. So sometimes I give the example that I give this example for the university students that when you write a paper and you give it to a professor and I was given this example to them on the board because I had done it with some of them. And those who had the misfortune to be my student, Allah Akbar. Uh-huh. So when they turn in an essay and if I feel the essay was not good I would give it back and I would say rewrite it. I would give it back and I would say rewrite it. Or another two ways to respond to this. One is the student will get upset. He will get hurt. He will be offended. You know? And especially if he feels that he worked hard in the essay. He says, I don't understand I worked so hard in this paper. And I put so many days and nights into it. Professor giving me back and telling me to rewrite it. And maybe in a fit of anger he'll just drop the course. So what happened was I was giving him a hidayah. He chose to resist it. It became a fitna for him. Second student. I said, okay, I tried my very best to write this essay. And if he's telling me to rewrite it, it means he thinks I can do even better. I'm touched. <laughs> he thinks I can do even better than this. Not only does he think I can do even better than this, he wants me to do even better than this. He thinks I can do better. He wants me to do better. He's giving me another chance to do better. He's going to help me do better. And he's not going to be content with me until I do better. So Alhamdulillah. Hmm? This is wonderful. That's what it means to accept Hidayah from Allah SWT when he sends a test on a person. Mizal Pratsa is saying, you can do better. Rewrite. Rewrite your haya, rewrite your adam, rewrite your taqwa, rewrite your zikr, rewrite your ibadah, rewrite your akhlaq. You have potential to do more. And the deen has infinite potential to transform you more. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala wants us to do better. <laughs> he wants us to do better. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be radhi, he would be content when we do that better. We thought, because when we were so analyzing ourselves, he should be radhi with us now. He should be radhi based on how much we're doing. Allah ta'ala says, no, he may indeed be radhi with us now, but he wants to be more radhi with us. So he gives us hidayah to do more. It's exactly the same way I would tell the student. It wasn't a punishment for them. It was to create an opportunity for them to do it better. We should rewrite the essay. So this is what happened with Allah Ghazali Rum Latal. I thought, let me rewrite. <laughs> Allah Akbar. You are Alim, you are Saleh. He, was, he wasn't Ghair Saleh, he was Saleh. Alhamdulillah. At that moment in the early period, he was Saleh. With a virtuous, pious, upright, non sinning. There's no question, there's no sin that he did. No, he doesn't mention that that I was a sinner and I realized I had hypocrisy and I'm talking in front of people even though I sin so I better go and take some years and purify myself of sin. That's us. Hmm? So you can imagine that if somebody, Imam Ghazal who didn't have sin, he went through this crisis that I have to go search for Yaqeen. Imagine for those of us who are sinners hmm? how much more shame we should have. Allah Akbar Kameena. So this, one of, I feel this is one of the greatest things of Imam Ghazali, his search for yaqeen and his insistence on yaqeen. So it's not enough that we, and I know maybe I also, maybe taught that to you in that style, we celebrate the fact that Imam Ghazali said he found yaqeen in the path of tasawwuf. Yeah, but that tasawwuf is a little bit different than what we're doing. <laughs> he found yaqeen after 10 years of riyadha uh, means deep, intense struggle and spiritual exercises and seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah Akbar Kabira. And then another interesting thing is once he got that yakin, and then so going back to that very first lesson, he returned to his dawah, what we call Mansabud Dawat wal Irshad. He returned to calling people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and guiding them. Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took him back after two years. Hmm. I mean, again, if, if we were to think about it, we would say, oh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now we've got Imam Razan back after 10 years, he's finally returned to teaching. So he should teach for 10, 15, 20 years, travel the Muslim world, transform the lives of millions. In two years, Allah ta'ala took him back. Hmm? Because actually the abode of attainment and accomplishment isn't this world. Akhirat, Darul Fatah is Akhirat. It's not even this world. Allahu hmm? Akbar. But Alhamdulillah, whatever works Imam Ghazali did right towards the end of those 10 years and in those last couple of years. They still touch people's hearts today. <laughs> so this is one aspect of Allah Spanta's hidayah. So I made it clear in the beginning, nobody can have a true understanding. That's why I said nobody can claim to understand how Allah Ta'ala guides. Ultimately, that's also an ghayb. But in our own life, and the lives of these ulama, mashayikh of the past, and all of us in our own lives, you will sometimes see things you have to accept it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
When you accept it as minzana billah, it becomes hidayah for you. And when you resist it, it can become a fitna for you. There's so many small things that happen to people in their life. I will say small, I mean, they might be big. person's job changes, person's PhD program changes from England, go to Germany, come back to England. Hmm? person moves from UAE to UK. So, no You'd have to view it and accept it as Manjana Billah. When you view it as Manjana Billah, then you very quickly, Allah SWT, will make it a hidayah for you. And when you reject it and you try to plan and understand and analyze and pros and cons and decision making, Allah Akbar becomes a fitna for you. Imam Ghazai he found this yakin in the path of the people of the Sawuf. Why? One aspect of it was that the true way of doing zikr means a person lets go of the dunya. Many times people contrast akhirah and dunya and zikr and ghafla. But actually, zik- that's also correct. But zikr is also to be contrasted with dunya. Zikrullah in any way, shape or form, maybe salah, maybe muraqabah, maybe dua, in any way, shape or form, is basically to unplug the dunya. Unplug the dunya from you and unplug yourself from it. It's a dual connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unplug the dunya from you and unplug yourself from it. That's what happens when a person makes a zikr. That's why then when the people experience that, now you have to understand, for Sahabi Akram, they experience this all the time because they were in the sobah of Nabi Akram, they were constantly, there's no question of them plugging into the dunya and then plugging into them. So they didn't use such ecstatic terms to describe this because that was their normal state. But when people, earlier than Imam Ghazali, but like him, spent two years, five years, ten years trying to unplug, when they finally unplugged, yes, there was an ecstasy in that. There was a joy in that. There was a euphoria in that. And they needed a way to explain that, so some they said, Fana! They were trying to explain to people what they had experienced. It doesn't matter what the word is. It was this experience. They forgot the whole dunya. They forgot the whole dunya. Allah Akbar. We can't even imagine what that means to forget the entire dunya including your own self and to forget the dunya and yourself not due to some depression due to some gham some worry no 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 due to being drowned and absorbed in the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so yes when they experienced it they had a jeep you want to call it hal, you want to call it kefiya, you want to call it fana, but it was something. Because it's different. And that's why Sahaba Kram didn't have that ecstatic aspect of it. Because they were always like that. <laughs> always like that. Because the only thing for them was sometimes they were in more fana and less fana. And even that disturbed them. Like the famous word, Nafaka Hanzala. What he meant, and to use the terms, 
you meant to say, Oh, Rasulullah, when I'm with you, I'm in a different type of fana. And when I'm away from you, I'm in a lesser type of fana. It didn't mean he went back to dunya. Not like that. Allahu Akbar Kabira. That's, that's the shan of Sahaba. They lived their whole life like that. Lived their whole life as Zakirin. Completely disconnected from the new And we might not ever be able to achieve that. Right? But you know what's like the people who diet? Hmm? Even if they shed two pounds, they get so happy. They say, I might never be able to achieve my ideal weight. Even shedding two, three pounds makes them happy. Even you shed some of the fat of the dunya, you you will find yourself becoming very happy. You become lean. Hmm? Hmm? Then when you become lean, you do the same amount of dhikr, it will have a bigger impact on you. Bigger impact on you. That's why the doctors always say, diet, and then they say exercise. Diet, and the reality is if you do the diet part properly, you don't even have to increase the same amount of exercise, will have such a deeper impact on you. Because you got rid of the fat, you became lean. So when a person becomes more trim or more lean in dunya, they shed some of their dunya, that same five times salah, that same, however much du'a or recitation they make, will have a much bigger impact on them. And if they remain heavy in dunya, hmm? heavy in dunya, and they think that, okay, with this five times salah and some Quran du'a, I'll add ten minutes of zikr. What makes such a big effect on them? Hmm? You tell a person who's 400 pounds, you run one extra lap. He says, there's no benefit to me. Running one extra lap, I need to lose 100 pounds. <laughs> if I lose 100 pounds, I won't even have to do any extra laps. <laughs> so there's another delusion some people have on this path. They don't want to shed their dunya. They just want to add a little bit of zikr. Won't make such a it won't make a transformative change. Yes, Alhamdulillah, even one second of zikr you will get sawal, ajr, you'll get reward, virtue, merit from Allah Subhanahu But it won't bring us closer to that yaqeen. It won't bring us closer to that feeling of remembrance with Allah Subhanahu That that's something else that requires some effort. But that is something so worth it. That not just once or twice, if you have to rewrite dozens of times in your life, is worth it. And every rewrite brings you closer. I give the example of undergraduates. Now what we are trying to do, there are many rewrites. <laughs> There's five, ten rewrites going on. Hmm? And every rewrite brings you closer. Hmm? So you should enjoy it. That's why... in our ibadat and our deen there's takrar constantly rewrite your fajr every day rewrite your salah five times a day rewrite your fasting hmm? every year rewrite, improve, do it better do it more, do it again to do it better do it again to do it better 
the qurb that a person gets to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through their own amal is more is more than anything else there's dawah there's khidmah there's teaching there's teaching Quran teaching hadith teaching marriage course teaching parenting course person can get a lot of fulfillment from these things but nothing can be a substitute for a person's own amal of zikr and ibadah. Nothing can be a substitute for a person's own taqwa haya. Nothing can be a substitute for a person's own adab, akhlaq, sifat. So that's another thing that we have to find this balance. Allah Ta'ala may have given us opportunities of khidmah, maybe of parents, of grandparents, of neighbors, of relatives. If you don't have anybody like that in your close circle, then there's plenty of opportunities of khidmah for refugees and widows and orphans and oppressed and poor. Hmm? And when you do that khidmah, you will find it fulfilling. If Allah Ta'ala blesses any one of us to sit even with a refugee child for one hour and just play with them, you will walk away highly fulfilled. But even that's not a replacement for your ibadah. And that's not a replacement for taqwa. And that's not a replacement for Haya. We might do Dawah. We might travel the world, give Bayans. We might go for 40 days or 4 months. And even just even one night in Dawah can be extremely fulfilling. You might knock on somebody's door and invite them to come to Masjid. And they might say yes. And they might actually then tell you and spend one night with you and tell you the next morning that the first time I prayed Fajr Salah in years. And you will be find it very fulfilling. It's not a replacement for your own taqwa, your own haya. It's not a replacement for your own ibadah, your own amal. It's not a replacement for our own adab, our own akhlaq. And why would we want it to be? Why would we want that? Because that's nifaq. Why would we want to be a person of dawah and khidmah who doesn't have taqwa and ibadah ourselves? How do we want to be a lecturer or a presentation giver where we don't have taqwa and haya ourselves? Should we wouldn't want? Why would we want such a thing? So rather than just plugging on or carrying on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He brings a person to this position that now you have to come on amal it requires a person to make it their mission their maksud their very purpose of life is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I know that for most people who work and have to earn a living and they're managing so many things in this lifestyle with the rent and car Allah Akbar huh? Ajeev hmm? early days I, I don't know how long what happened in Australia but I don't know when rent started rent is also maybe the advent of this extreme private property people would just live they wouldn't have so much concerns because their living was more simple and their eating was more simple. So again, they shed some of the fat of the dunya when they had not so much pressure 
and concern for how much to earn dunya. So they were free to have worry and concern for how to earn akhra. And when it's flipped, and a person has so much pressure on how to earn their dunya, that they don't have that level of purposeness in earning for their akhra. Another thing is also we should never ever be content with where we are. We should never think, no, I'm doing just right. There is never such a just right. We should never even think that we can attain that. That no, I'm almost there. I've just got one or two things left and if I can get those things going, if I can just balance one or two more things with the kids, I can read ten minutes more Quran, I can maybe, you know, go to a dars once a week for one hour, I'll be just right. No, no, no. There's no just right. There's no, you will never arrive. Deen is sirat, sirat al-mustaqim. Sirat means path. There is no point of arrival. It's ajeeb, this word sirat, it's fluid, it's dynamic, it's unending. It's unending. You know, that's the beauty of a circle. A circle is just, uh, I don't know, the pure theory of math, an infinite series of points that are actually tangents on something else, Allah Alam. But when we look at it, it's a nice, beautiful thing because it's perfectly round. Hmm? There's no end, there's no beginning in a circle from when we look at it. Hmm? It's perfectly round. There's no point. We can't see that it's made up of whatever these series of points. But that's Sirat. There's no point. There's no target. There's no goal. That no, I just have to, you know, just get this one, two things and I'm nail it. No, 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 no. If you get those one, two things, you have to keep going. If you get those one, two, three things in your life, just down, fine, pat, and you think you've arrived, and you plan to slow down, you plan to stop, Oh, Allah SWT is going to shake you. <laughs> you will be tested and tested repeatedly, repeatedly and tried who is Asan, Asan. So Asan is not static, Asan is dynamic, it's fluid. More Hussan, more Hussan, more Hussan, Asan, most Hussan, most Hussan, most virtuous, most noble behavior, most focused ibadah. More. The whole deen is about more. Yes, this we can say is that there are some constraints in my life that are out of my control that might sometimes cap or limit how much I can do on deen. That's fine. But you yourself putting a cap on it, that's not fine. You yourself saying, but I've got it enough and this is just right, that's not fine. And if you look at a person, even in worldly pe- people and their passions for the world, a person who's really passionate, they never set limits. And that's how they talk to one another. They should dream. And you should aspire. You can always do more. You can always do better. Masha, hmm? even people do very good work. Alhamdulillah, we recently, a few months ago, we met somebody who was running all these hospitals in Pakistan. And 
already, and is very known in the hospital, I'm not taking their name, but very known, already the amount of work they're doing is massive. And I was already stunned, even before meeting them, I was already amazed at how these people have managed to do so much work. And when I met them, and then they shared more about what they were doing, I was amazed. But then the thing that, that I loved about him, he wants to do ten times more. I would have thought, there's no way you can do more. How is he even doing so much? He wanted to do ten times more. <laughs> he was restless. And sure enough, that we found out that even the government, government of Punjab, they started giving him. They said, please come and take our hospitals. They just take it. You, you take it and you run it. Allah Akbar Kabira. Ajeeb. Why? Because there was a talab in that person. When you want more so much, Allah Ta'ala gives it. Allah Ta'ala gives more in ways you, you, you would have never dreamed and imagined you could have attained that or aspired for that or accomplished that. But you have to want it. It's very dangerous to put a cap or a limit on our talab. On how much we want. Yes, there will be external factors that will put limits on how much we can do, but we should never put a limit on how much we can want and how much we do want. And that's also a lesson from Imam Ghazali. I mean, when he left and when he began his journey and when he sort of identified this path of the Sawaf. He wanted wilayat. He wanted it all. He wanted that yakin. He said, I want the next best thing after Anbiya. Any Anbiya are gone. Nubuat cannot be acquired by anyone. What's the next best thing? What's the best thing I could possibly attain? I want that level of yakin. I want the closest approximation to the yakin of the Anbiya. That was basically what he wanted. Allahu Akbar. Ajeeb. Second thing about him, along with yakin, is tawakkul. Tawakkul on Allah. Because when you see his journey, it wasn't something he could have. He didn't plan those ten years in advance. He didn't plot them. He just left doing tawakkul on Allah Subhanahu. Trust and reliance on Allah Subhanahu that if I'm journeying to Him, if I'm true and sincere that I'm journeying and seeking His pleasure, and He will guide me. In fact, the only way, the best way, the best way to make sure that He will guide me is for me to give myself entirely to Him. But the sign of that is a person has to do Amma. One thing a person has to track in their life is their amal and their taqwa. Anytime the amal go down, it's guaranteed. It means we're becoming distant from Allah Subhanahu Taala. I'm not talking about one or two days. Somebody's in some illness or some worry in the family or traveling. Overall, if there's a few weeks, months like that. A person feels their amal went down, means they're going further from Allah's pleasure. And if 
over time the Amal are going up and the Taqwa is going up, then they're coming closer to the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa All these explanations are just to understand simple things. Amal and Taqwa, Amal and Taqwa, Amal and Taqwa. And it's in these two things that Allah subhanahu wa set no limits. There's so many amal, nawafil, so much taqwa, atka, more taqwa, most taqwa, additional. There's unlimited additional amal, and there's unlimited additional taqwa that a person can do. Unlimited. Allahu Akbar. Imam Ghazari at his time this was the way that I feel that he did a revival of the Sawwuf because the vast majority of ulama not all but vast majority of ulama view him to be the mujaddid of his Islamic century and that obviously is the deed of entire deen not just of the Sawwuf but what had happened at his time was also because of the whole Greek and you know, philosophical movement that people were starting, it was starting to encroach on Tasawwuf and Tasawwuf was just becoming a philosophy, a nazariya, just something of the mind. But Imam Ghazali set it back on track through personally himself living that that no tasawuf is about the heart, it's about yakin, and it's about tawakkul and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And himself living that life, Allah kept things on track for at least, if one accepts him as a mujaddid, at least for a century. At least for a century. And that's a huge thing. You know, one century in history, so many things happen. You know. And we've just now hit 100 years of World War One. Now you tell me, I said that word to you, World War One. you think it's not, it's recent past? How much has happened in this world from World War One till now? Then imagine if Allah SWT raises someone who does tajdeed of deen and their work of tajdeeds was such that it had a mm, renewing a renewal effect on Deen for a hundred years through all types of circumstances. Then Imam Rabbani Ramalatana, Shaykh Amatsir Hindi Ramtana. So that means you are now moving about four or five hundred years, four or five centuries ahead. At his time, Again, uh, very similar actually to Imam Ghazali Mulatala's time. Uh, all types of corruption in the Mughals, and that's a whole separate story. This is the problem, you know, you told me to start at nine. Hmm? Here Imam Rabani Mulatala one, just a couple of things I'll tell you more briefly then. Uh, so maybe I'll just skip the part about him and just about 
what he was able, the key things he accomplished. Number one was that at his time, which wasn't the case at Imam Ghazan at that time, but at his time, uh, there were a lot of bidat, a lot of bidat, such that the majority of the sawwuf had become full of bidat. Majority of the sawwuf was majority bidat. All shrines and tombs and worshipping, praying to the dead, and uh, but that's just tip of it, strange concepts, very strange and incorrect concepts. But at the same time, Imam al-Abari was still an age where there were some very, very true muttaqi, zakir, pious awliyaullah. So it was basically a decision moment. Which way is it going to go? Which way is it going to go? And don't think about what you're seeing right now, because although they say Mujad al-Fisani, Mujad is for one century because that's what the Hadith says, right? So no work of any Mujad is going to last four, five, six hundred years, right? But for his century, Alhamdulillah, Imam al-Bani was able to write very forcefully against Bidat. Then the concepts, Ajib, And that, this is one reason why after the past couple of months I actually now would tell all of you even more strongly that you should not read Maktubat the Rabbani. <laughs> reason is that the letters are not arranged in chronological order. And what happens in that is that there are some letters which he actually is writing in the first instance to his own sheikh and when he's writing to his own Shaykh, in those letters, he is just sharing with the Shaykh some of the mystical Sufi things that he learned and practiced and that occurred to him in his earlier practices. And all of that will change under the tutoring and mentoring and guidance of Hazrat Baki Bilaram Tane. And then there's another type of letter that he writes later on. And when he writes that later on, he's writing to some, not to a sheikh, to some other people, trying to take them out of that type of tasawwuf and to bring them onto a more, you know, what he likes to call saluk of nabuwa, just a more tasawwuf closer to the prophetic way, but to show them that he knows what they're going through right now, lest they think that, you know, we would say, so they don't think that oh he doesn't know you know and we are in a very high state and he has no idea where we are and that's why he's talking about Sharia and all these things so to show them that no no sort of what we would say in saying been there done that type of thing he writes about some of those things in those letters also and some of those come later and even chronologically they're written later but for a different purpose and we have another problem today that some people use their own mind to try to read Maktubat and come up with their, they say, their own true new understanding. Your own true new understanding. It's like me having a new understanding of Einstein. Huh? So what Imam Rabbanu did was an amazing thing. It was much more than the, the, 
the reformation of the outward rights and rituals of Bedat was the inner concepts. Achieve is also this aspect of Zikrullah as such a disconnect from the dunya. That for him, in Zikr is the antithesis of Wahdudul Bajud. You can't, you forget all of creation. Zikr doesn't mean you see Allah Ta'ala in all of, all of creation. In Zikr, you have to forget all of creation entirely. And then he wrote another beautiful thing that he said that because then there were some people the one extreme was that the world is one with Allah SWT. Then people who at that time were considered to be moderate and muhakkik they said the world is a shadow of Allah SWT. Imam Rabbani said no, the world is not even a shadow of Allah SWT. It's nothing. The world has no haysiyat, it has no reality to it. And you know when you read those verses in Quran when Allah SWT talks about Yawm Al-Qiyamah He will fold up the firmaments the mountains will be like carded wool and one of that is for us to feel fear of that day and to feel about the might and power of Allah SWT but a second main lesson from that is this world has no reality this whole world is achieved I can't remember, I just read it a few weeks ago. I can't remember who the alam was, one of the early and great ulama slipping my mind. He wrote an ajeeb thing. He wrote, Allah Spaltala will fold away all of creation exactly the same way he unfolded it to begin with. So it's if you science, it's like a reverse Big Bang. That's what he was imagining. And he was writing way before the scientific age, it was an earlier person. Just imagine, you know like how they have this, the video and then it shows you in reverse. But just imagine the whole Big Bang going to reverse, like some big reverse black hole. All of creation going back into a point of nothingness and then that point disappearing. That's how he, Allah, even before science, he understood this. Allah SWT will unfold, retract all of the creation this created world, dunya, the same way that he gradually unfolded and created it. Allah, what more can we do? This is nothing. The whole material, because Jannat, and that's also creation, but that's different. It's not the material creation, it's a different type of creation. This material, known, physical universe will all be made into nothing. If it had any nisbat with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, were it the shadow of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or anything else Nauzubillah, how could it be folded away? It's because it's nothing. Its asal is nothing, and it will be returned to its asal, it will be returned to nothingness. But that's thicker. <laughs> that's a level of unplugging from the dunya. Hmm? That's a level of negation of the dunya that enables a person to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was a couple of things of Imam Rabbani One last thing I will tell you about him is now going back to something I said in the beginning about Dawah. Now, it's the same reality, but Imam Rabbani used a different word and he called it Sharia. He called it Sharia, to establish the Sharia. But it didn't mean in the 
political way that people would use that those, that phrase today. What he meant was work of deen, establishment of deen, doing da'wah of deen. And he writes in one of his letters that those Sufiya, those people of zikr, who are engaged in the work of Nabuwa by establishing Sharia are infinitely more better than those Sufiya who are spending all their day and night just in their individual zikr. Because he realized that once a person has a certain amount of remembrance of Allah SWT, one of the beautiful ways to remember Allah SWT is to help and guide others to remember Him. To spread that zikr. To share that zikr. And he viewed that. He felt that was the us. So that's ajeeb. To remember Allah SWT and to help others remember Allah SWT. To forget dunya and to help others to forget the dunya. And then, lastly, go three, four hundred years again forward. And then two great individuals who, for simplicity's sake, we will take them together. Hazrat Rashid Ahmadun Goyrim Latan and Hazrat Fajr Maman Ashraf Ali Tangiram Tani. Again, Mujaddid. Now, Imam Rabbani Nabtai's time, what he was able to learn from his Shaykh, and then what, how he was able to take the path of the soul forward, was in fact indeed brought him to a path that was much better than any path that existed at that time. At that time. But once Imam Rabbani had oriented the soul properly, then all of that, Chishti, Qadri, Surawardi, any and all branches and lines of the Sawaf at that time were able to benefit from that. And after benefiting from that for three, four hundred years, that led them to the Ulama of Deoband. Now one thing which is maybe more relevant to me or more mundane or more practical, which I feel was a great thing of Azad Gungoy and Azad Tanvidam is they were the perfect model of how to be a good sheikh. What should a sheikh be? And how should a sheikh act? For that, one has to look at Sheikh Rashid Amagangoyramta and Sheikh Rashafalitamagramta. The way they interrelated and interacted with their students, the way their humility, Ajeebhmatam, their humility and self-effacement and not in, truly, genuinely not viewing themselves to be huge Mashaikh or huge Oliyullah is a unique thing when you read them when you read the letters that they wrote to each other there's a deep exchange as well I'm done this is because as you come more recent these things are more documented so the letters they wrote to each other and then the letters they wrote to other ulama and then the their teachings and their sayings, it's, it's, and I think that is still the model actually for today. Uh, even though, technically speaking, now actually, well, not yet, but very soon, I suppose, a hundred years will have passed. Uh, but 
you know, they were, you were living in England, they were, you were living in British England, and they were living in British India. Yes. So they're not so dissimilar. Uh, you also have a queen, and they also had a queen. Hmm? I don't know what, Queen Victoria, I think. Huh? Yeah. Hmm? And I'm not saying this to be funny. There was an influx of Western ideas in British colonial India. And it was something that those ulama saw. Now, you, you know, people today might think that they didn't understand it. That, you know, they understood its asal. They understood its spirit. Hmm? They understood its evil. Alright? Without maybe having some deep understanding of Western... European Enlightenment content of philosophy. It's not, you don't need that when you've got kashf and you can see the ruh behind it. <laughs> they saw the ruh of all of Western culture and civilization. Law hmm? of That's why actually our ulama deoband, that's another reason why they're very important. Very important because basically Allah alam, but apparently Certainly in the present, all of us are living in this Western age. And apparently this will be the end. I mean, it will remain a Western age until Dajjal comes. Whenever that may be, that may be hundreds of years from now. Right? So they saw it and they knew it. And they experienced it. Allah And for them to have done what they did in that environment is amazing. It's an amazing, phenomenal thing. We, with all of our liberty and independence and freedom now in Pakistan, we can never imagine doing even 1% of what these people managed to do while being colonial subjects. But that it's an oppressive life. You know? And, so one thing that which I mentioned that was more relevant for me, but Hazrat Rashidam they brought two types of balances. And this is the, this is honestly the last thing I will tell you tonight, inshallah. Two types of balances. The first balance was between itadal and ihtiyat. It's very rare that a person can have both. So itadal means balance and equilibrium, but it can even mean moderation when it doesn't have ihtiyat. And etiyat means to remain firm and steadfast in deen. What happens is, is that normally a person has one, but then they lose the other. And we have people like that right now in the world. People who, in the name of etidal, to balance everything, balance their deen and dunya, to balance their different priorities, they lose some of the etiyat. They lose some of their wara, they lose some of their scrupulous piety. And we have the other category as well. That they're, alhamdulillah, in ihtiyat, and we celebrate their taqwa, but they've lost their ihtidal. They're not balanced people. And they are living a life that maybe only two, three hundred of their fellows can live, and they can only connect and reach out to two, three hundred like-minded people like them. Uh, they're and they're removed from dawah. They're not able to make dawah, they're not able to make a 
positive contribution to the Ummah, but no doubt they themselves are living a life that is, mashallah, alhamdulillah, preserved and mutat. So the ulama of Dilban, they balance these two things. Balance here means without diluting them. They had 100% ihtiyat while having 100% ihtiyat. Allah Akbar is unique. It's a unique thing. Ajib. And that's exactly the lesson you need to live in this modern age or Western civilization. You need to have 100% ihtiyat, I accept it. But you need to have 100% ihtiyat. And you can't let your itadal make you compromise on your ihtiyat. And you need to find that ihtiyat that is pragmatic. That ihtiyat that is pragmatic that doesn't make you lose your itadal. And the second thing they balanced, because both of these words, when I say the words itadal and ihtiyat, people think that maybe they were a bit passive. So the second thing they balance is they still retained their junoon and jazbah. They still retained their junoon and jazbah, their ardent fervor and passion and intense feelings about deen and for deen. What I mean by this, a person could become very relaxed and passive and not do much, then it's easier to have itadal and etiyat. But you still have junoon and jazbah. And to be dynamic and ardent and passionate and still have itadal and still have itayat while having junun. Allah Akbar Kameena. And that I'm saying this now, I'm, I'm not giving you a history lesson tonight. I was plucking out those things from these great people's lives that we need today. Each and every one of us, we need these things. That's the beneficial history. To learn from the history what you can benefit from. And we need that. We need to have our janoon and jazbah, our passion and ardor and drive and craze. This word janoon is a craze. A passion and craze for deen, about deen, in deen. But with itadal and with etiyat. And this was a special feature <coughs> of the ulama of the Allah Now we may not who claim to follow the tradition have all these things but they had it they had it and that's something that here I don't know how much of all of you understanding what I'm saying but that's something that I found surprisingly in Hazrat Ashraf Ali Tanrata's writings whereas normally he is viewed as somebody who did not have Junoon and Jazba and was only on Ihtihat but when you read him more extensively, you will see an amazing Allah Akbar. Amazing. As more passionate a Sufi than Mansur Halaj and Ibn Arabi themselves. Hmm? Yeah. More passionate a Sufi than as passionate, I wouldn't say more, as passionate a Sufi Jalaluddin Rumi Rumat himself. Hence, writing a huge commentary on the Mustafi of Malana Rum Ramtana. Allah Akbar. But 100% ihtiyat and 100% itadal and 100% junoon and 100% jasta. Each one to the full. 
not percolator. So here, I mean, us having these things 100% may not happen, but at least we understood the concepts tonight. So I will just say the words again, and it's just these few words you have to take away. Yakin and Tabakko. We need to increase our Yakin. And we will do it by having Tabakal Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we must submit to Allah ta'ala's Hidayah. And let ourselves be guided by the guidance. Then it will be Hidayah for us. And if we resist it in any way, then it becomes fitna for us. And that Zikr is to forget the dunya entirely. To forget the dunya entirely, you can't love it at all. To forget it entirely, you can't love it at all. <coughs> love for the dunya is the source and root of all error, all mistake. And to have that ihtidal and ihtiyat along with our craze and passion. These are a few concepts, whether it's for our ilm or for dawah or for zikr or our ibadah or our khidmah or interpersonal relations or kukunabad. There's the same thing to have full love but be careful about a person's sensitivity, be itadal, be balanced, that you give them time, that you give your other roles and responses in your lifetime. This is a framework and a model that we learn from our ulama and mashayikh. It's not just for our deen. The way they lived their life on deen is a guidance for us in deen and a guidance for us in life. And a guidance for us in life. Make dua that Allah subhanahu wa keep us always on Surat al-Mustaqeem and may He guide us and connect us and make us benefit from the teachings of Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Sahaba Karam radiyallahu ta'ala anhu jamayin professorin, muhandisin, fuqaha, usuliyin and all of the ulamai kamilin and awliyai muhakikin wa akhirat da'wana and alhamdulillahi Make silent zikr before you make dua. Close your eyes, bow your head, disconnect yourself from the world. Make need that you want to unplug your heart from the dunya. That you want to connect your heart to the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That you want to remember him from the depth of your being. You want to remember him with every feeling, every emotion that he gave you. You want to desire him with every passion and yearning he gave you. You want to love him with every aspect of love that he gave you that you want to give your very heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the way you turn your heart to Him is by making zikr of His name you make niyat that your spiritual heart, your qalb the heart of your ruh is silently calling His name that your qalb is calling Allah, Allah, Allah
Ya Rabbi, you give us tawfiq for iman, give us tawfiq for amal. You give us tawfiq of iman, give us tawfiq for the sifat of iman, tawfiq for the hakikat of iman, tawfiq for the adab of iman, tawfiq for the akhlaq of iman. Ya Rabbi Kareem, I ask that you forgive us for all of our sins, Ya Allah. Forgive us for every sin that we did. Forgive us for every lie that we told. Forgive us for every delusion we were in. Forgive us for every lapse in our haya, lapse in our sabr, lack in our taqwa. Ya Rabbi Kareem, make us strong, Ya Rabbi. Raise us as strong and muttaqeen, salihin, zakirin, mu'mineen. Make us from your mukhlisin, mutawakkileen, muhsineen, mu'mineen. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, we ask that you put barakah in our homes, barakah in our time, barakah in our risk, barakah in our families, barakah in our relationships, barakah in our children, barakah in our spouses. Ya Allah, there are so many, many roles that you have placed us in. Ya Allah, let us have husn and straight husn and become people of ihsan in each and every role, in each and every responsibility. Ya Allah, let us not be neglectful, let us not be negligent. Ya Rabbi Kareem, make us strong and steadfast in our relations and strong and steadfast in our deen. Make each and every one of us, Ya Rabbi, from your ibadah salihin. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Rabbi, make door for the Ummah, Ya Allah. We make door for the Muslimin of the Ummah, the Mutasirin of the Ummah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, protect us from the zulm of the Zalimeen. Do a rad of the zulm of the Zalimeen. Ya Rabbi Kareem, rescue all of the Muslimin. Accept us for the khidmat of the Ummah and the khidmat of your creation, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Rabbana takabal minna innaka anta sami'u al-alim. Wa tumbu alayna innaka anta tawabu al-rahim. وصلى الله تعالى على حبيبه سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين